0: Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children." Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well.
1: Amen. We're continuing today with this study that we started two weeks ago and that we're calling from bondage to freedom. And it's a study in the book of Exodus. And the reason that we're calling it from bondage to freedom, as I said two weeks ago, is because that is the authentic movement of the Christian life. In other words, our God is ever and always through Christ Jesus calling us out of bondage and then calling us into some form of freedom. And the reason that we're doing that study of that movement from the book of Exodus is because really there's just no greater picture in the whole of the Old Testament, the two-thirds of the Bible that come before the birth of Jesus, than what we find in the book of Exodus. And to prove that point, I just want you to follow the gesture, okay? So in the book of Exodus, we have God through a deliverer named Moses in that case, delivering his people miraculously, incredibly, from what? From bondage and slavery, in their case, to Pharaoh in Egypt, and then faithfully leading them through, in their case, the Sinai wilderness and bringing them to a promised land, a place of abundance, a place of sweetness, a place of fullness, a place of joy, a place that is finally theirs. What's the gospel? It is that Almighty God has not abandoned us and left us behind in the earth, but instead through a deliverer named Jesus, the true Moses, by the life of Christ, a perfect life, by the sufferings and death of Christ, the perfect life laid down on behalf of the guilty, by the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. What does Christ do for us When we bring him our sin and selves in faith, here's what he does. He liberates us from bondage to far greater enemies than Pharaoh in Egypt. Sin and death itself. And then by His Spirit and through His Word and with His people, He shepherds us through the wilderness of this life. And what is our end of all ends? I mean, like, how it all ends for all of eternity, how exactly is that? It's a new heavens. It's a new earth. It's a place in which we are no longer sojourners, in which we are no longer foreigners. It is a homeland of our own. It's remarkable. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So as we continue this study of the book of Exodus then today, we come today to the story of the birth of Moses. And we see in this story what a delivered person looks like. And that may be a little bit confusing because I just told you that Moses was the deliverer, and that's true. But before Moses could become the deliverer, Moses himself had to first be delivered. And I want you to remember this phrase, delivered people deliver people. They can't help it. And it's what Moses will ultimately do. But first he has to be delivered. And here's what a delivered person looks like. It looks like a person, yes, delivered from sin, yes, delivered from death, but it looks like a person who recognizes that and in response to the great deliverance that is ours, then values Jesus and the titles that come with being his and the eternal pleasures and treasures of the homeland that's authentically ours more than anything or anyone else in this life. That's what it looks like. So let's look for it in the life of Moses. We pick up our study today in Exodus 2, beginning in verse 1, where Moses, who is the author of his own story, says this He says, Now a Hebrew man, that's Moses' dad, From the house of Levi, so he's of the priestly line of Israel, went and took as his wife a Levite woman, and the woman conceived, and she bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, okay, that's not what it says. It says that when she saw that he was good, the word means literally beautiful, he was a magnificently beautiful kid. What does she do? She hid him for three months. Why? I mean, you'd think she'd want to put him in a stroller and proudly walk him down the street. You know, look at my son. Well, you know, if you've been with us in this study, you know why. Guys, the Israelites are enslaved to the Egyptians. They are in the land of Egypt. God's hand of blessing is upon them in the midst of their slavery. Don't overlook that. He's not abandoned them. He's blessing them. And how? How does it show up? Fertility. They are multiplying so quickly that the Egyptians have grown a bit frantic about it. Their slaves are becoming a little too numerous. And so they've tried to curb the fertility of the Israelites in a variety of ways. And finally, Pharaoh just said, well, here's what we're going to do. So from now on, every male child born to an Israelite woman will be executed by being thrown into the Nile River. She has the son and she hides him. So she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, at least in her home, what does she do? She chooses to hide him in the one place that no Egyptian is going to go looking for a living Israelite male child. She hides him in the Nile River, but notice the way that she does it. It says that she took for him a basket. Okay, that's not what it says either. It says that she made for him an ark. An ark matters. She makes like a little boat. She made it of bulrushes, and she daubed it with bitumen and pitch to waterproof it. And then she put this beautiful child into this little ark, and then she obeyed Pharaoh's command, if you think about it, and she places him into the waters of the Nile, though in a way that subverts his murderous intent, and she placed the ark among the reeds by the riverbank so that it wouldn't be carried away in the current. But why does it matter that it's an ark? Because there are only two stories in the Bible involving an ark. This one. And one that Moses also wrote earlier on in the book of Genesis, Noah and the Ark. You know the story, don't you? God comes to Noah and he says, judgment because I am a just God is coming upon the earth. And, And I think that we all know that God is a just God and we're cool with God being a just God, like we actually want God to be a just God, except when it applies to us. Isn't that true? We realize that if he is altogether holy, that every wrong must be righted, that every debt must be paid that every offense must be addressed. Every offense. But instead of wiping everyone away, he comes to Noah and says there is safety from the judgment of God. And here is where you're going to find it. You're going to find it in an ark, (laughs) like in his case, a great big ark, like a ginormous boat, if you will. That the family of faith build by faith to the ridicule of the world, or with the ridicule of the world, and then they float safely above the waters of judgment. Do they not? It's remarkable. What is Moses' mother doing here? She's claiming the safety of that God. She's going to that story. By faith, she makes a little boat, an ark, for her son, and she's saying, dear Lord, just like you spared Moses and or Noah and his family from the waters of death, please do that for my son. And the Lord honors her faith. It says in verse 4 that after Moses was placed among the reeds in this ark, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Why? Because nobody knows what's going to happen next. I mean, it's kind of like, well, we put him in the river, and he's in the ark, and he's safe for the moment, but we've entrusted him to the Lord. So God is going to have to deliver this boy, which makes what actually does happen next, at least initially, kind of terrifying. (laughs) Because the next thing you read is that the daughter of Pharaoh, the guy who has said, Moses must die, and all the other Israelite boys like him. Okay, his daughter now comes down to the river right where the ark is stuck in the reeds. She came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the water, and she, the daughter of Pharaoh, saw the ark among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman to go get it, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw this beautiful child, and behold, it says, the baby was crying, which is either endearing or annoying, isn't it? I mean, it's one or the other. Like, when you get on an airplane, you're not hoping to sit next to somebody with a kid, right? I mean, that just... But for her, it's endearing. She's moved. It says that she took pity on him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. How would she know that? Because he's circumcised. That's pretty definitive. And then Moses' sister, who sees this reaction, comes out of hiding. She comes running over to Pharaoh's daughter, and she makes a brilliant God-ordained suggestion. She says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for who? For you. What is she saying? She's saying, clearly you have a heart for this baby. Clearly, you were supposed to find this kid. By the way, you're probably one of a handful of people who could defy your father, the pharaoh, because, you know, I mean, all dads are... We've got a soft spot for our girls. I'm not going to lie, right? So, I mean, you can curry the favor of him. Only you can save the life of this beautiful child. You should adopt this child. And here's the deal. There are all these Hebrew women who have had male children that have been thrown into this river that are prepared to nurse children that they don't have. There's a big selection. Should I go get one for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, good idea. Go get someone. And so the girl went and called Moses' own mother. (laughs) And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give to you your wages, which is remarkable. She's a slave. And Pharaoh's daughter is saying, now listen, I want to be sure that you do a good job here. So I'm actually going to pay you to do this. I will give to you your wages. And so the woman, Moses' mom, took the child and nursed him. And she nursed him not just physically, guys, but clearly she nursed him spiritually. As you read through the writings of Moses, you realize that you're in the mind of a genius. This man was brilliant. He was a prodigy. And she would have had him, according to the custom of those days, probably till he was about four or five that's when he would have been weaned. And when he's weaned, it says, as the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. But first, true faith had been instilled in his heart. And Pharaoh's daughter then named him Moses, which means to draw, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so Moses has been delivered from death. And he's been delivered from death by means of an ark, which provides for us what? An amazing and incredible picture of the gospel. Why do I say that? Because again, God is a just God, but there is mercy. There is deliverance from the justice of God found through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who absorbs the justice of God so that we might be transported, if you will, above it, spared of it. That's the idea. But what I want you to see is Moses' response to the deliverance in terms of what he values most, because Moses here, again, is writing his own account of his own life. And what he does next is he pretty much blanks the next 35 or 36 years. In other words, we go from when he's about four or five to when he's about 40. But in the intervening years, what happens? Well, clearly he's raised in the Pharaoh's palace Clearly, he's educated in the finest institutions in the world. His mind is cultivated with the best teaching. And beyond that, it seems at least, history suggests that he was given some pretty serious duties to accomplish as a prince of Egypt. Now, the reason that I say that is because Josephus writes about Moses, and he talks about how he was tasked by the Egyptians to deliver them from the land of Cush. It's modern-day Ethiopia. Talks about him as a great general, as a great warrior. It's remarkable. But the other thing that happens with Moses, if you think about this for a minute, is that he spends 35 or 36 years growing really well accustomed to the titles, to the pleasures, and to the treasures of Egypt. He is a fully formed 40-year-old guy when we next meet him in the narrative. And even though he has grown well accustomed to all of those things, which I'm sure were amazing, When confronted with the choice between the titles and pleasures and treasures of Egypt and the titles and pleasures and treasures of Christ that are eternal, he forsakes Egypt utterly and wholly. We see it beginning in verse 11. It says, one day, and remember this phrase, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Well, what people is that? Let's just keep going. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian unjustly is the idea, beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So his people are the Israelites, and that's firm in his mind at this point. He sees this injustice going on, and as he does again and again and again and again, he intervenes. So he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, so he doesn't think anybody knows— He struck down the Egyptian and he hid his dead body in the sand, which is not just a rejection of Pharaoh and of Egypt and of the Egyptians in favor of the Israelites. It's a rejection of Egyptian theology. And here's why I say that. Because Egyptian theology required the preservation of the physical body for that person to then attain the afterlife. That is why the science of mummification was developed and perfected in Egypt and in fact perfected so well that if you go to the Cairo Museum today you can actually look into the faces of some of the pharaohs. They have their bodies in a special exhibit. It's remarkable. So from the perspective of the Egyptians then what Moses has done is he's killed an Egyptian and denied him life in this life but not just in this life. in allowing his body to to decay in the ground he's denied him the afterlife as well. But from Moses' perspective, he's done no such thing. Why? Because he doesn't believe in any of that stuff. That's really evident. And then when you get to the New Testament and you say, well, what's the perspective of the Bible on this move by Moses right here, the choice that he makes? You don't have to wonder because the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 24, this, he says that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, remember the phrase? Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Even though that was undeniably one of the most powerful titles in the entire world. Choosing rather, we read, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For Moses, we read, considered the reproach of Christ. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And Egypt, ancient Egypt is known for its treasure. How many of you have seen King Tut's exhibit? Anybody? few of you? Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? Like the world marvels over the King Tut exhibit. It's traveled all over the different places. I've seen it in the Cairo Museum. It's remarkable. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. Okay, here's the deal about King Tut. He was an 18-year-old minor king. He was a total nothing compared to the pharaoh in whose home Moses grew up in. Nothing. The wealth of Egypt is remarkable, and yet Moses rejects the most powerful title. He rejects the pleasures. He rejects the treasure, and he rejects it in favor of what? It says here that he was looking to the reward. Well, what does that mean exactly? The reward of the titles and pleasures and treasures that is his, that is mine, that is yours, through faith in Jesus, and that are not fleeting, but that are eternal, That's the idea. That's the point. And so long before Moses becomes Israel's deliverer, he himself is delivered, and he's delivered from the Nile, and he's delivered from sin, and he's delivered from death. But here's what else he's delivered from. He is delivered from the bondage that is all of ours when we choose to value anything or anyone above Jesus. And here's why I say that. Because every human being is wired to worship. It's what we do. And we worship and serve whoever or whatever it is in the particular moment of life that we're in that is of most high value to us. Which means that we are all of us slaves to something or someone. It helps explain why later in the narrative, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, when God appears to Moses and says, look, I want you to go back to Egypt and I have a message for Pharaoh. The message is not just let my people go. The message is let my people go so that They can come out and serve me. What is the text suggesting? It's saying, look, guys, freedom is not found in my ability or in your ability to choose to do whatever it is that we want to do, which is just really a different way of saying to choose to enslave ourselves to whomever or whatever we choose to enslave ourselves to. Freedom instead is found in enslaving ourselves, in submitting to, in giving ourselves to, in worshiping and serving and living for the one who has made us to live for him. And in that, to find our highest and greatest and most pleasurable good. And incidentally, he's the one who has given his, himself wholly to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So Moses sides with the Hebrew. He kills the unjust Egyptian. He thinks he's gotten away with it because he looked around and he didn't see anybody. And then we get to verse 13, which says that when Moses went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews this time were struggling together. And again, Moses takes the position of justice. He stands up for the oppressed. He says to the man of the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the man answered, and this was kind of a gutsy move. He said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me? as you killed the Egyptian. And then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. And surely it was, because the next sentence says that when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Why? Because he got the choice. He understood the message. He's rejected Pharaoh, he's rejected Egypt, he's rejected the gods of Egypt, he's rejected the titles, the pleasures, the privileges, all of the advantages that he'd been given advantages in favor of Israel, in favor of the God of Israel. So Moses flees, says that he fled from Pharaoh and he stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. And if you've been doing your personal worship this week and you've worked through the rest of this chapter, then you know that it's at the well that he meets his wife and that leads him into a sweet job with his father-in-law He's a shepherd, okay? And then he spends the next 40 years of his life shepherding sheep in Midian, and he had to at times be thinking, good grief, all of this education, you know, all of this training, all of this desire, all of this for this, and yet all that while he's being further prepared for a mission he doesn't even know is coming. God is with him even there, just like he is with us. He's being trained to become Israel's delivered deliverer, but again, delivered from what? Sin, death, God at the Nile. think we got that part, but also the bondage of being enslaved to anything or anyone other than Christ. So we'll pick it up again a couple of weeks there. But for now, let me ask you, first of all, have you been delivered by the true Moses who is Jesus Christ, who entered into this world, God made man this time of year, He comes into the world at Christmas to live the life that none of us have lived, one that deserves no justice, for it's the perfectly just life. And then he receives the justice we deserve on the cross. He becomes for us the ark, if you will, in which we find safety from the flood of the judgment of God that we know must come. Have you put your faith and trust in him? And then beyond that, in response to it, do you value him? the title of son or daughter of God, the pleasures and treasures of eternity more than the titles of this world, more than all that the world has to offer? And I think you can just ask yourself, you know, because we all fall into this. Hey, what titles, what pleasures, what treasures? Okay, Lord, right now am I living for? But then secondly, are you a deliverer? Because delivered people deliver people because they just can't help it. You know, you've been shown mercy, it makes you merciful. You've been the recipient of grace, it makes you gracious. When God has poured out His love in your heart, it makes you a more loving person. When you're really overwhelmed with the reality of the sacrifice of Christ for you, it makes you a more and more and more sacrificial kind of person. And just like God prepares Moses through all of the turns and twists of his life, all the ups and downs, all the failures, all the fears, all the successes to be a deliverer. He's done the same thing for you. The only question is, how has God prepared you? Or what is it that he's prepared you to do? Because every time when we get to the end of the service, it's the the go out and do what he says moment. And it seems to me that the go out and do what he says moment is, okay, Lord, how have you prepared me to be a delivered deliverer? A redeemed redeemer, as Matt talks about what have you done and poured into me? And how have you positioned me? Open my eyes that I might be used this season to be a deliverer for you. All right? So as we come to the table, think about those things. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, that you have not abandoned us to our own devices, but indeed that you have intervened. And you intervened at Christmas. We thank you for the one who is God and man, come into this world to rescue us from ourselves. We praise you for the life that he lived and then, in love and in selflessness, laid down that we might, through faith in him, find eternal life. Lord, that we might also, too, truly learn how to live. And so then, God, I pray that you would speak to us in this time as we prepare to come to the table about our titles and our pleasures and treasures and whatever, about anything or anyone that we've placed above you, that we might put you in your rightful spot and know the freedom that comes from that. So God, have your way with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.